Go ahead and have a seat. good to have some um, out-of-town guests this morning. I don't know if you're... I, I see Dave Renwick in with a Florida tan. If you, haven't, if you haven't seen Dave, say hi. We also have Carla from Ann Arbor. Carla used to live with us for many years, and uh, she decided to drive to Holland yesterday and swung through, picked up Jen, and then uh, was like... I want to stay and come to church with you guys in the morning, which is awesome. Um, we are going to continue our series that we have been doing, The Gift of the Christ. And this uh, morning's lesson is The Suffering Servant. I think that's up there. Last week we looked at uh, two attributes of Jesus that uh, we can sometimes overlook when we are uh, just thinking about Jesus, baby, in the manger, and presence. I'm glad that James mentioned there's a strong pull on our heart that this season is about materialism, consumerism, or just indulgence, just like time off, I want to spend time, even if it's good-natured, like I just want to spend time with my family. That's good. That's not Jesus, though. And so we are going to spend some time really looking at attributes of who Jesus is, so that on Christmas morning, when we're thinking about Jesus, it's a very full, well-rounded picture of Jesus, not just the baby in the manger. So, I got two things today. The first thing is servant leadership. We're going to look at the servant leadership of Jesus. And then we're going to look at the sacrifice of Jesus. And I am going to see if I can redo this whole thing. Um, so, the servant leadership of Jesus. I wanted to look at two men, historical figures, that I think are, are really inspiring. They're super uh, great ways. If you're looking at what is servant leadership, these two guys are really, really awesome. And so, let's see. Yes, yes. Uh, the first one is this guy. I don't know if you know him. This, this is Albert Schweitzer, Dr. Albert Schweitzer. Amazing guy. I would encourage you to look up his, uh, look up his biographies. Read, read about Albert Schweitzer. He's pretty amazing. He's from Germany. He's a German theologian. He's also a doctor, an actual doctor. And he, uh, like pre-World War I, during World War I, he, he got it on his heart. He wanted to go to Africa and set up hospitals or work in hospitals work in healthcare in Africa. And so he kind of teamed up with a group of people, but he was the wrong denomination. He's Lutheran, and I don't remember what denomination it was, but they, they were like, no, you can't come with us because you're the wrong guy. <laughs> and so he said, can I appeal? And they said, yeah, you can appeal. Come to this like board meeting and make your appeal. He was like, I'm not going to come and stand in front of all of you. He before that, he ended up making appointments with every single guy on that board and just getting to know them and appealing to them individually, personally. Said, hey, this is who I am and this is what I want to do over in Africa. 
And he, he didn't go to the board, but they all voted to let him go. They said, but you have to pay your own way. So he was also an organist, and he, he came up with like a concert tour that he did all on his own to raise money so that he could go to Africa. It was, it was a French colony at the time. Now it's modern-day Gabon is where he was. But um, he set up a hospital in, in, in Gabon, and he worked there. Uh, during World War I, the French military was super suspicious of him because he's German. <laughs> and they were like, what is this guy doing? Is he a spy? So they kept an eye on him at all times. It made his life a little difficult. They were like, we'd rather you just go. But he's like, I ain't going. And so uh, Queen Elizabeth actually um, kind of saw him. Like they gave him the order of merit and... He ended up going on to win the Nobel Peace Prize, Dr. Albert Schweitzer. And we, if you learn more about him and if you talk to people that are into uh, philanthropy or anything like that, they, they might know, man, Albert Schweitzer is amazing. But to learn all the hardships he went through to get there is uh, daunting. I'm pretty sure you know who this guy is. This is Martin Luther King Jr. And this is like one of the most famous pictures of Martin Luther King Jr., He's talking to hundreds of thousands of people in Washington, D.C. I wanted to read something about his beginnings. Martin Luther King Jr. had no ambition to become the leader of a movement. When Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus on December 1st, 1955, King was a 26-year-old minister just one year into his job at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. He had hoped maybe that one day he could become a professor. That was his like, lofty ideals. The legendary boycott that followed Park's arrest was not King's idea, and he did, uh, when he was told about the plan, he did not immediately endorse it. He was a little bit uh, reluctant. After some reflection and prayer, though, he offered a room in the basement of his church for the organizers to meet. He was like, I don't, I'm not fully on board with this plan, but if you guys want a place to, to talk and do your plans, you can meet in our basement. On December 5th, a mass meeting was called to be held in the building of another congregation, the Holt Street Baptist Church. And that afternoon, the boycott organizers met in King's basement and voted to call themselves the Montgomery Improvement Association. Then, to his surprise, and probably because he was not well known and no one else was eager to accept the risks, King was elected the group's president. <laughs> he got voluntold. It was after 6 o'clock, and the meeting was scheduled for 7 across town. King rushed home to tell his wife and write a speech. It normally took King 15 hours to write a sermon. For this address, his first civil rights speech he ever gave, he had 20 minutes to prepare. He says in his autobiography that he spent five of those 20 minutes having a panic attack. And then 15 minutes later, he was picked up and driven to the Holt Street Church. And then fast forward to this, and this is what we think. We don't think of the guy reluctant in the basement having a panic attack on the ride to the speech. We think of this. We think of honor and a certain amount of like glory and fame. And sometimes 
we want that for ourselves. Like we want, if, if, you're one, if you're on the more ambitious side of the spectrum, which is good, you see people who have attained great things and you're like, I want that for myself. Even if it's with the best intentions. And I'm going to assume everyone here has 100% pure, holy, righteous intentions. And you want to see God do great things through you and with you and partner with you and do great things in the world. And we, are, we get pictures like this in our mind. Like, I could do great things too. Problem is, we want to skip all the service and the humility and the work and the pain that comes with everybody that ever got to anything like this. And so this is what we want to look at with the, with the person of Jesus. He, he modeled servant leadership. And so let's read a few scriptures. I love this one in Matthew 20. I, this is like, gosh, I, I overused this phrase, so I'm sorry. But this is one of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible. Because this is where Jesus is like, you know how it is, and we're not going to do it like that. Matthew 20, starting in verse 25. Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus is contrasting two types of leadership. The way the world does it, and the way that it's going to have to be done in the kingdom. And it's going to be based on service and sacrifice. And Jesus modeled that for us. Here's another another one that I absolutely love in Luke 22. He says, For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? but I am among you as one who serves. He's like, who's who's more powerful in the home? The master sitting at the table or the servant or the butler or the person bringing him his food? Isn't it the one at the table? Yes, we all get that. We know that. And yet, I'm the other guy. I'm the guy that's serving. And he's saying, And I love that he's saying, I am among you as a one who serves. I am, he's like, I'm saying, I am here for your benefit. But we have to ask ourselves, when we read these two scriptures, which one are we most like in our hearts? Do we like to claim our place at the table? Or do we like to serve? And something interesting happens depending on I'm just going to be honest, my moods, my emotions, the time of day and how tired I am, if you're hungry, if you're hot, if the kids are yelling, you're like, I know the right answer is I'm supposed to serve and I'm supposed to give and I'm supposed to love, but man, if the conditions are right, all that's out the window. Do those things affect our willingness to serve? 
When we're tired, we just want to take our seat at the table and wait to be served by someone else. And we can show up to church like that. You're like, eh, it's been a hard day. What? (laughs) And so here's my question. Am I serving and leading in a way that is different than the world? It's easy for us to say, like, oh yeah, I serve. And then the the follow-up would be, well, do the people in my life feel served by me? I know I'm just going to address the husbands in the room. I try not to pick on the husbands. I'm sorry if if it feels like I am. Husbands, I know that you work hard for your families. I know you do. And if you're working and if you leave and you work all day and you come home, that's service to your family. You're providing for your family. That is not to be underestimated. It's to be praised, actually. And I'm grateful for you doing that. But if you come home and your kids don't feel like you're serving, they don't know what you do and they don't care what you do. To be honest, your kids don't care how hard you work at at your job. But they see you when you come home. And do your kids say, I feel served by my dad. There's a brother in Ann Arbor who I love dearly. Now he's down in Texas. And he was like, he's like, man, I I heard something that like tore my heart out and like threw it on the ground and stomped on it. He's like, do I give the best of my energy and my heart and my attitude to my boss and then my family gets the leftovers when I come home at the end of the day? And do they see all my tiredness and all my exhaustion and all my frustration? Or do I, do I pace myself emotionally and, and give my boss less so that I can go home and give my family the most, everything I have left? And I, I thought about it. When he said that to me, I was like, oh my gosh, bro, you are so right. <laughs> Do the people I serve feel like I serve them? And then leadership. What is leadership? To me, it's pretty simple. Leadership is when you do something other people see and they're like, oh, I could do that and I wanted to help. I want to do that too. There's a lot more to it, but that's a great way to, do, to think of leadership. And so you lead in your families. You lead in, you lead in your relationships. You you can lead in any situation. You can lead by saying, I, wanted, I want to live in such a way that when people look at me, they go, hey, that's awesome. I want to do that. And the way he does it, I think I could do that. If no one feels served, you might not be serving. And if no one sees your life and wants to imitate it, you're definitely not leading. But Jesus did both of these. He was the ultimate servant leader. And we just don't see that in a baby. And so on Christmas morning when we're like, Jesus is the reason for the season, I want you to think about, man, Jesus served. He was here not to be served, but to serve. And he was setting an example. And that's awesome. But the next part of this is where it gets a little more challenging. And then it wasn't just like, it wasn't academic. It wasn't, he wasn't like a, a guru or like a, a self-help leader. 
he was, uh, he was the lamb to be slain. And so the fourth attribute of Jesus that I want us to think about on Christmas morning is sacrifice. Again, it's something you don't really see in a baby in a manger. Being a servant is admirable, but Jesus went even further than just service to sacrifice. And so, here's a scripture for us. In 1 John 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so Jesus is a lot of things. But he, I'm going to say this in a weird way, he can't not be this. Part of who Jesus is in your life has to be the atoning sacrifice for your sins. And sometimes we can, we can lose sight of that and we can think, man, he's the cool rabbi, he's the cool teacher, he's the cool... Or, he, or the majesty, the glory, and the power, and the authority, he's the king. But he also died. And so when we take communion every Sunday, that's, that's, the, main, that's the main thing. Is that Jesus died for you, and that should, that should just humble us so much. Here's another one. Luke 22, this is the Last Supper. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He wasn't, he wasn't mincing words. He says, I don't want you to be aloof on this point. This is for you. This is for your benefit. And I think when it comes to sacrifice, gosh, I got to be careful because we could talk about this for a long, long time. We reach a point where we're like, okay, I'm okay with service, but as soon as it crosses the line into sacrifice, well, what does that mean? That means, okay, I'm giving up something or something is starting to hurt a little. But we as a society have driven, drawn a bold line around any hurting. And if you hurt for someone else, well, maybe that's a toxic relationship. Maybe you need to set up some boundaries so that you don't do that. And I'm, it requires a lot more nuance than I can get into right here, guys. But, and I believe in good, healthy boundaries in relationships. But we can boundary ourselves to never sacrifice for someone and never emulate the sacrifice of Jesus ever. And I, the way I think about it is this. Like, I was the worst of sinners and Jesus died for me. Jesus didn't draw a boundary between himself and the cross for me. And you were worth the sacrifice to Jesus. But do you believe that? And if you do, I mean, maybe you're like, yeah, I mean, because I'm so awesome. I can totally understand why Jesus died for me. 
We never say that. But then we won't, we won't die in little ways for each other. And so when Jesus said, if you, anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, carry their cross daily, and follow me. And so I'm just putting this out there. If we want to be disciples of Jesus, we have to live like Jesus. And that includes, we got to stretch ourselves in terms of sacrifice. Now, if you're in, if you're in an uh, abusive relationship right now, get out. I'm not telling you to stay in something dangerous because of Jesus. And if, you're, if you are, have trouble differentiating those things, please come talk to someone. But I'm telling you that we can take those things too far and we can immediately start saying no to everybody but ourselves. When self-denial is the opposite. Self-denial is learning to say no to ourselves. So here's the way I'm going to word this question. How much sacrifice is too much sacrifice for me? Because we are not like Jesus. We all have a limit. And we can just need to be honest with that. You have a limit. You have a limit. You have a limit. I have a limit. There's a limit where we're like, nah, I'm done. Like, like Steve... He needed help moving. I helped him move. Then he asked again. I'm like, man, I'm busy. <laughs> we were legitimately out of town. But then he asked a third time because Tom t- stuck the washer in the stairwell. And we were like, let's get this out. Third time's the charm, man. We'll get you moved into your house. <laughs> we're all going to cry boundaries at some point, And that's okay. Jen did a great thing with The Best Yes is a really good book. I don't expect us to pretend that this limit doesn't exist in our hearts. It definitely does. But I do want us to be aware that it exists. And I think we should get good at training ourselves to push it a little. Someone says, hey, I need help. And you go and you help them and then the rest of the day you're tired? Like, like, I, I, I'll give you some sympathy, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah, that was, woof, you pushed yourself. <laughs> and I don't mean to make light of this, but Albert Schweitzer, Dr. King, they became known for going past what other people were like, I'm not, I would never do that. And yet they, we want the things that they got and never want to do the things that they did. We want the glory, the honor, and the praise without any of the sacrifice. Or here's another way to put it. We want the things that sacrifice will produce in us without the sacrifice. Like, man, so just think about this in terms of diet and exercise. If I said, hey, do you want the body that will come with eating completely healthy and working out eight hours a day. I'd be like, yes, I want that body. Well, all you got to do is eat healthy and work out eight hours a day. I'm like, never mind. But we want that, we want that spiritually. We only want the product, not the process. I want the thing at the end of the road. I don't want the journey on the road. And so here's some examples. How are we doing with time? I'm going to go late. It would be easy for me to say, man, 
I want a great marriage. I want my spouse to emulate this or that. And we make this mistake where we're like, man, if only they did this, then we would have this great marriage. But the question is, what do I need to do to cultivate this environment where we can flourish? I want spiritual, well-behaved, obedient, emotionally resilient children. Man, that takes a lot of work. That takes a lot of work. That I think, honestly, if I'm being totally honest, parents, we, we just don't want to put in the work. Or, I want a community. I want a spiritual family. I want a sense of community. It's easy to say, I want a sense of community without doing any of the work of community. And I want to talk about that for a little bit. When we first moved here, when we first moved here, I think we've been very open with this, either privately or publicly. It was, it was a hard year, guys. It's really hard. 2020, 2021, not awesome. Not awesome for me in my heart or Jen. And I'm on a, like, a, like a conference call every week. Me and 12 other ministers, and they're all ministers of small churches around the Midwest. We get on a call and we talk. That was like my therapy for that, for 2020. And we do it every week. I've done it for three years now. And I was being very open and vulnerable with them, and they weren't, there was not a lot of judgment, okay? They let me vent. But I was just like, ah, I'm feeling all this stuff. And they were all feeling it too. Because it was hard. It was hard on ministers in 2020. But one of the guys was like, hey, bro, I want you to read something. And he read, he, he, he pointed me to this book, and it, like, changed my life. And maybe, maybe we're only still here because of this. <laughs> the book is Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If anybody loves Bonhoeffer, I know Andre loves him some Bonhoeffer. Uh, Read this book. You might know him for some of his other works, but read this book. I, I took pictures of the book that I'm gonna, we're going to read right now. Because there's a passage in this book that gutted me. And it was for my spiritual benefit, and it was for your benefit in our community. And so this is what he says. The first chapter is called Community. And this is what he says. Not an ideal, but a divine reality. Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it has sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. It only gets harder from here. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community. 
and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves, this is what killed me, he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, God hates visionary dreaming. Which you might be like, hey, I don't think that's true. But wait. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. (laughs) So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally, the despairing accuser of himself. Guys, this gutted me. The idea that we all want a a place where we belong and a sense of family. We want community. And yet, you can come in here thinking, this is exactly what it should look like and this is how they should treat me and this is what they should do for each other and this is what they should do for... And all that does is it keeps you from loving the person you're looking, you're standing in front of. And so we can make an idol out of the perfect Christian community. And I love that Bonhoeffer says, God will destroy that. He will smash it to bits. And so here's my, here's my last question. Do I love the dream of community more than the people in front of me? It would be so easy for me as a minister to to see you where you're at now and say, once they get to this spiritual mountaintop experience, then they'll be of some value to me. And the thing is, if I don't love you the way you are right now, there's a chance you'll never get there. And if we as a community, if we as a a group, we're all showing up at the same place on the same day, hopefully. But are, are we taking those opportunities to look at someone and say, you're the person that God has put in front of me right now, and I'm going to show you the love of Jesus. And that's it. I'm not going to wait until you you can provide for me the thing I need, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You can waste a lot of time in church dreaming about what you want it to be. And all the while, no one ever actually feels loved by you. And so you become the destroyer of the very thing you want others to provide. Bonhoeffer hit it right on the head. And we can be like, oh, I want this thing. And by saying that over and over and over again, we never get it and we destroy it for other people. 
And I'm glad that Jesus didn't live that way. Jesus walked around for years with a bunch of losers, and he died, and they were still losers, to be honest. They weren't all-stars. Well into, I mean, ever. Like, they were fallen. They were, they were just broken people, too. And Jesus is like, I'm going to love you. I know all your faults. I'm going to love you. And I want us to emulate that. Let's close. We're going to read Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's one of the most beautiful verses. And it's easy for us to say, man, Jesus is awesome. I love the end where it talks about how Jesus is amazing. But the verse is about how we treat one another. And we have to go back, servant leadership, and sacrifice. When we read Philippians 2, do I see my brother and sister as more important than myself? And I'm just telling you, we live in a society where that's absolute foolishness. And so, if you're not, if you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ this morning, I don't want you to hear this and be like, man, that sounds like that sounds like a lot you're putting on me this morning. And it could be totally overwhelming. I am not asking you to embody these immediately and right now. I'm not saying, hey, you better do this or you're a bad person. My goal is for the series is to see attributes of who Jesus is that we miss. It's easy to miss these when Jesus is just a baby in the manger. And I want this Christmas, I want you to know who Jesus is. If you have made Jesus Lord of your life, I want you to ask yourself if you are serving people. And if you're inspiring other people to serve people. Gosh, imagine if Christians around the world served people and inspired other people to serve people. I would also ask you to understand your limits and the boundaries you put up between other people. 
and work to train yourself to roll those back. Identify when is sacrifice too sacrificial. Say, but I can at least push myself. I'm not going to die if I help a brother out. Because I think you'll, you'll eventually get the product of sacrifice. But you'll only get it if you commit to the process of sacrificing. Amen? Let's pray and we're going to take communion. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for his uh, ability to humble himself and serve people 